0: Thanks for checking out this week's message. I hope that it's helpful for you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Here at Restore, we are a place where anyone can have a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. So I hope you walk away from this message knowing that you are deeply loved by God and that you can be fully loved by a church community. And if you don't have that, we would love to connect with you here at Restore. You can go to restoreaustin.org to find out more. Good morning. Um, I want to start by saying that, obviously, um, it's been a pretty tough week and a half uh, with what's happening in uh, Gaza and um, with the ongoing violence, Um, and uh, it's one of those subjects that is difficult to talk about in a vacuum, you know, without, like, actually sitting down and understanding a lot of background and history and all of those things, and a lot of times when we do little sound bites, we end up just kind of you know, sounding ignorant and also feeding into um, unnecessary things. Um, but I, I don't wanna go by without acknowledging that um, I am praying for peace and a ceasefire and um, that I think you should be praying for peace and a ceasefire too. Um, and that there are a lot of innocent people, um, including a lot of children um, in Palestine and, and with Palestinians and Israelis um, who are caught in the middle of this. Um, and it's horrific. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, Second thing to acknowledge this morning uh, is a repeat of what Lindsay said in announcements, but I realize not all of us are punctual, so you may have missed that if you came in a little bit later. Um, And that is that this morning we're talking about a story um, out of Genesis, uh, commonly referred to as Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, This is a story that has a a lot of... um, violence in it, specifically sexual violence. Um, and so this is essentially just a warning if you've got um, kids in here that you uh, want to avoid um, that subject matter, totally understand that. If you want to check them into kids, um, that's fine, but you're adults, you can choose what you'd like to do with your children. Just want to give uh, a warning about that. And then also, if you are a survivor of sexual violence, um, again, this text is really about that. And so um, I'm not going to... Um, sensationalize anything or anything like that, but we are going through a story in the Bible that's about that. So I wanted to give you that warning before we dive in. I am going to say a very quick prayer, and then we're going to start, okay? God, thank you for this morning. Um, just moved by the words of that last song, uh, Oh God, We Need You Now. Um, that's true in every moment, but it's it feels more true depending on what's happening in us and in the world. And a lot of really difficult things happening in a lot of us and certainly in our world. And so I pray that this morning we would lean in to you, to your love for us, to your love for all people. And as Matt prayed, you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth found in your scriptures that we're going to open up this morning. And I just pray that all of us would just walk out here a little bit more like Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. Some of y'all know I'm fairly active on social media. Uh, What? (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, I talk about a number of different topics, uh, but they're almost all based on what it looks like to follow Jesus kind of in today's world. I do what some call public theology which is essentially just cultivating conversations about who God is and what God requires of those of us who attempt to follow him. Now, I've been doing that for almost a decade, uh, but around the time of COVID, things began to shift a little bit. More and more people started joining these conversations at the intersection of God and culture and our world. Or to put it another way, my public theology started to be very public. And the increase in engagement has been fun in some ways and really not fun in some other ways. So the fun side of things is that I've been able to connect with thousands of folks who still love Jesus, but really struggle with what much of Christianity has become in America, including some of y'all. That's a really fun side of this. Some of y'all found Restore because of social media, which is really beautiful. Um, But aside from just meeting some of y'all, I also get to DM with folks from around the world who uh, get connected with. And then um, I also get to talk to a lot of them on the phone or Zoom. Um, And I don't have all the answers to anything, right? But I get to talk and pray with people who are looking to connect with a pastor in our church who might see things a little bit differently. And that's been such a gift, a wonderful, wonderful gift. On the not fun side, I get a lot of death threats. (laughs) The vast majority are anonymous and, you know, just anon accounts being big and bad behind a keyboard. Um, But a few have been kind of scary over the years. And I've actually had to take all the pictures of my kids off of social media because people started downloading them and manipulating them in some really horrible ways. Um, Now, thankfully, those things are kind of the worst that it gets. Mostly, it's people calling me names and telling me I'm going to hell. That is... Uh, daily occurrence, (laughs) especially after Elon changed the Twitter algorithms to encourage even more outrage in our world. It's crazy. I mean, even if I just post the most innocuous Bible verse, angry people turn up to yell. But there is one subject that transcends all the rest. One topic that if I talk about it, brings out the angriest, vilest, most intense vitriol imaginable. It's not heaven and hell. It's not atonement theory or original sin or, or any other theology. It's not even racism or sexism, although those, those get pretty nasty too. Does anyone want to guess what it is? Gay folks. Gay folks. <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> LGBTQ plus inclusion. When I talk about how God fully loves and includes LGBTQ plus people in his family, and that the church should do the same, people lose their minds. And what I find most interesting is that it didn't always used to be like this. When I would talk about these same things a few years ago, people would mostly ask pretty sincere questions. Things like, well, but what do you do with the verses in the Bible that you know seemingly condemn homosexuality? Well, what about church history and, and the church fathers that talked about this, you know? And honestly, the worst that it got was just calling me a heretic, which again, happens a lot. When the questions came, I would explain my interpretation of the verses, I would talk about passages that I believe promote inclusion, and I would make the point that church history has been wrong about a lot of subjects. Sometimes people would be convinced, most of the time they wouldn't, but either way, it mostly ended there. But as we have seen a sharp rise in homophobia and transphobia in our culture, over the last few years, the responses from Christians on social media have changed too. Instead of questions and concerns, people began claiming that the Bible teaches that LGBTQ plus folks deserve to die. These proclamations are almost always accompanied by a reference to one particular Bible story, Sodom and Gomorrah. They believe that God considers homosexuality such an abomination that he destroyed two entire cities with fire. Now, hopefully, most people don't believe that LGBTQ plus folks deserve to die, but I would bet that almost all of us who grew up in church have heard some version of the fact that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of same-sex activity that took place there. Most of us have heard that story. But is that what's really happening in this text? Back in August, we started something called A Year of Bible Stories for Grownups and began to work our way through some of the most well-known passages in Scripture with the goal of interpreting them in ways that lead to Christ-likeness and healthy community and flourishing for absolutely everyone. And we're doing this because so many of these stories have been weaponized in ways that have not only really hurt people, but even driven many folks away from the church or Christianity altogether. And I truly believe that Sodom and Gomorrah is one of a handful of stories that has been weaponized more often and more harmfully than all of the others. And I wanna illustrate just how important this is and just how true this is with a few statistics. These are from the American Psychological Association, the Trevor Project, UCLA, the Marin Foundation, a few other places. Um, I'm happy to, to share them with you or send them to you later on um, if you want. They're going to be on the screen, but we'll move through them pretty quickly. The first one is that 83% of LGBTQ folks were raised in a Christian church. That's actually higher than the national average for all people, 83%. And at least once in their lives, 96% of LGBTQ folks have prayed that God would make them straight. 96%. But God did not. In 2019, the president of what was the leading conversion therapy organization worldwide, which is, if you're not familiar with conversion therapy, it's this horrifically evil thing where they tried to make gay people straight or make you know, LGBTQ plus people different or change or things like that. This organization is called Exodus International. He said this in 2019, no one changes their orientation, it doesn't happen. No therapy, no ministry, no prayer meeting, no nothing. You cannot change your sexual orientation. He was the former head of the largest conversion therapy organization in the world. Many LGBTQ people tried or were forced to try orientation change through something called conversion therapy. That practice is now illegal in 26 states and the District of Columbia. Why is it illegal, you might ask? Well, because LGBTQ plus people who have gone through conversion therapy are more likely to use illicit drugs, two times as likely to experience depression, two and a half times as likely to die by suicide, and three times as likely to die by suicide if encouraged to go to conversion therapy by a religious leader that with the fact that 1.8 million LGBTQ plus youth seriously consider suicide each year, and at least one attempt suicide every 45 seconds, which means just in the time that we have been here this morning, dozens of LGBTQ plus youth have attempted suicide around the world. When families reject their LGBTQ plus children, their children are 8.4 times more likely to attempt suicide. 5.9 times more likely to have high levels of depression and 3.4 times more likely to use illegal drugs than LGBTQ plus kids who have supportive families. In fact, this is a statistic that I really want you to take with you. Having just one accepting adult reduces the risk of suicide attempts among LGBTQ plus young people by 40%. One safe and accepting adult. A survey of LGBTQ plus young adults from ages 18 to 24 found that parents' negative religious beliefs about homosexuality were associated with double the risk of attempting suicide. Now, considering how often anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and conversion therapy are undergirded by Christianity and Bible stories, it's not at all surprising that 54% of LGBTQ plus folks leave their religious community after the age of 18. The national average is 27%. So that means they leave, LGBTQ people leave the church at double the rate on average. Now here's my point. The way we interpret stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the handful of other verses in scripture that seemingly address LGBTQ plus folks is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. It is also a matter of a huge group of people just being completely done with faith and faith communities. And it's also a matter of the church missing out on the unique ways in which queer people bear God's image and express the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts that they bring into faith communities. We need to get this right, y'all. Or more to the point, we have gotten it wrong for so long that we need to make it right. So that's what I'm hoping to do this morning. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 19. You can turn there or the verses will also be on the screen. Now, before we look at the story itself, let me tell you what I'm not gonna do this morning. I am not going to explain affirming theology or dive into verses about homosexuality outside of this story. I did that in a sermon in April of 2022 last year. It's available online. It's actually the most viewed sermon that I've ever preached. So if you go to Restore's YouTube, it's at the top. I'm also not going to outline our church's policy of full inclusion for LGBTQ plus folks. We are a church that has repeatedly and explicitly made clear that no matter your age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, gender identity, you can fully participate in every aspect of our church. Now, that does not mean that we require every person who is a part of Restore to believe all of the exact same things. Our goal is not theological or ideological uniformity, but we are completely committed around full inclusion for all people. That's what I'm not gonna do this morning. What I am gonna do this morning is walk through this often weaponized story in order to hopefully replace a very harmful interpretation with a healthy one that also just turns out to be the correct one. (laughs) My goal in this is much bigger than one story. My goal is to help equip us as the body of Christ whether we are inside of the LGBTQ plus community or not, to embody Christ's likeness in such a way that the deep trauma caused by toxic interpretations of this story can be healed for us and for the church at large. Okay, here we go. Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. It says, The two angels, remember that, angels arrived in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Okay. Pause here and give a little backstory of what's happening. Why are two angels visiting the city of Sodom? Well, let me just start by saying the stories surrounding this story in Scripture are wild. (laughs) They are very complex, very confusing. A lot of it is about the origin of the Hebrew people and the Hebrew people's understanding or perception of the origin of the peoples or nations around them. We'll talk more about this a lot when we tackle the Canaanite genocide story later on in this year. But for today, we just need to know that in the chapter before this, God told Abraham that he was gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham's nephew Lot lives there. So Abraham asked God to reconsider, to to maybe spare the cities. And they have this really fascinating negotiation, Abraham and God, where Abraham is like, hey God, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you not destroy it? And God's like, fine. If I find 50 righteous people there, I won't destroy it. I'll spare the city. And Abraham is like, how about 45? God's like, okay, 45. Abraham's like, how about 30? How about 20? They finally settle on 10. Abraham gets God down <laughs> to 10. Hard negotiator, Abraham was. Very impressive. So he says, if you find 10 people, righteous people in the city, please don't destroy it. God says, fine. So God sends two angels to Sodom to see if these angels can find 10 righteous people. Okay? Now you're caught up. That's why they're there. Back to Genesis 19. I'm just going to read the whole story through this time. All right? The two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house, come in, he says. You can wash your feet, and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the town square. But he, that's Lot, insisted so strongly that they go with him, that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old surrounded the house. They called to Lot, "Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them." Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, shut the door behind him and said, "No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you." And you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Okay, so this picture, right? They're banging on the door. Lot does one of those things where he like opens the door a little bit and slides, you know, closes it behind him. And he says, don't do this wicked thing. I'll give you my virgin daughters instead. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you, Lot, worse than them, the two angels. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they also struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Pause. The next 10 verses are basically Lot arguing with the angels saying, please don't do this, I don't wanna leave, this is my home, and then he goes to his family, because they're like, no, we're gonna destroy it. He goes to his family, he's trying to convince them to leave, and then he finally flees the city, okay? Verse 24, then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Okay, there's a lot that we could unpack in this story. One of the craziest parts is Lot offering his two virgin daughters to sexually violent men trying to beat down his door. Absolutely horrific. If you read on, these turn out to be the same daughters who just a few verses later in this same chapter get Lot drunk and sleep with him so that they can have his children. Again, horrific. But that's a sermon for another day. We could also try to unpack Lot's wife looking back for a final glance at her home city, only to be turned into a pillar of salt, ostensibly by God, no less. But that is also a sermon for another day. I want to bring your focus back to the heart of this story. Two angels came to Sodom, Lot meets them and talks them out of staying in the town square because he knows how the people of the city treat outsiders and just how dangerous the town square would be. The angels then stay at Lot's house, but before they go to sleep, they are uh, startled by a group of angry men who want to rape these angels. Now, does any part of this story even remotely resemble the LGBTQ plus people you know or the relationships that they are in? No. <laughs> of course not. It says that every man in the city came to Lot's house that night. Do you think every male in the city of Sodom was gay? Of course not. And when Lot objects, the men tell him to get out of the way or they will, quote, treat him even worse than the angels. Because this isn't about sexual orientation. This isn't about same-sex sex. This is about power and violence. If you actually read the story through like we just did, not if you just take someone else's word for it or blindly ascribe to the interpretation that we've been given, but if you just read it, does it feel like a condemnation of homosexuality or LGBTQ plus people? No, it really really doesn't. God is angry at the people of Sodom because they tried to sexually assault two angels. God is angry because the city has become so unsafe that those traveling through cannot even be in public for very long without risking a mob attacking them. And I think God is angry that Lot offers up his daughters to appease that mob instead of standing up to them. All that to say, it's easy to see why God is upset with the people of Sodom. And it has absolutely nothing to do with sexual orientation or gender. Now listen, finding better ways to interpret some of these stories, especially in this part of Scripture, is really hard, okay? Like the story of Hagar that Lindsay preached about last week, which, by the way, if you missed it, it was so good, you need to go back and check it out ASAP, that's hard. It's hard to interpret. you got to dig in. you got to try to figure it out. Or the story of Jericho, we're going to talk about in a few weeks, where it seems like God orders the genocide of an entire ethnic group. With stories like those, we really have to dig in. We have to study in order to figure out what does a healthy Christ-like interpretation of this story look like. But this is not one of those stories. This is not a difficult story to interpret. This is not a story that has a bunch of equally valid ways to understand it. You can just read it and see that the most common interpretation, the one that says God destroyed these cities because of gay people, is ridiculous. But it's not just that. Later in Scripture... We actually have the correct interpretation literally outlined for us with astounding precision. A man named Ezekiel, who is a prophet speaking for God, makes it very clear. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Is homosexuality listed there? Same-sex relationships, same-sex sex? No, the sin of Sodom is that they were arrogant, haughty, overfed, and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor, they didn't help the needy, and they did detestable things like commit sexual violence in mob form against people just passing through their city. This is not an ambiguous story. And it is not a debatable explanation from God through the prophet Ezekiel. I love how Rabbi Michael Harvey says it. I can't really think of anything more explicit than a prophet of God telling the Israelites, this was the sin of Sodom, and then listing the sin. According to a Jewish text called Genesis Rabbah, which is a collection of rabbinical interpretations on the book of Genesis from around 300 BC, there is a story that was told in the oral tradition about a young woman in Sodom who met another young woman at the town well. They were both there gathering water. But the first girl noticed that the second girl had become so gaunt and so pale from hunger that she was like, I have to do something to help. And so the first girl filled her water jug with flour from her house, came back and gave it to the younger girl so that she and her family could bake bread and have nourishment. And the story goes that when the people of Sodom found out about the young woman's act of kindness, they burned her at the stake. This was the ancient reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that they were a hotbed for queer people, not that they hosted pride parades. They were people who had so given in to the influence of evil that they would murder a young woman for trying to help someone in need. They were so obsessed with power and using violence to maintain it that they would attempt to rape angels who visited their city. They were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned with the poor and needy among them. That was their sin. Again, this is not a cryptic story with a myriad of interpretive options. The most common interpretation that God destroyed these cities because of gay people is utterly fictional. It is made up. It is nowhere in the text. It is completely incongruent with God's character. This interpretation is just anti-LGBTQ plus bigotry wrapped in a Bible story. And we must declare that truth because this horrible interpretation is antithetical to the way of Jesus It is driving LGBTQ plus people and those who love them out of the church and away from the faith. And it is quite literally contributing to people's death. As we just saw from those statistics earlier, suicidal ideation in the queer community skyrockets when they are rejected by their parents and their communities, especially when it's connected to religion. My friend Justin tells the story of a pastor who once chided him by saying, are you really gonna choose to live as a gay man? And Justin replied, well, I can't choose whether or not I'm gay. So the only choice I have is whether or not I live. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, we have to step in and correct this toxic interpretation, which continues to yield rotten fruit. This is what Jesus did all the time. You have heard it said, but I say unto you was one of Jesus's favorite phrases. He corrected harmful theology all the time. That was what he was about. That is what we should be about too, if we claim to be his followers. But I don't think it's enough just to fix this awful interpretation that has caused so much pain. We also need to be actively working to create new spaces of inclusion and flourishing for all people, especially those who have been hurt by the weaponization of Scripture. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Restore. We are trying to rebuke harmful interpretations and explore healthy ones. We're trying to oppose exclusion and practice inclusion. So I wanna wrap up this morning by telling you a story of what this looks like. This is not my story, but it is shared with permission. This is Kate's story. I practiced this story like 10 times this week so that this wouldn't happen. I met Kate about five years ago. She'd moved here to Austin to pursue her doctorate in physical therapy. She was a part of a crew from her school that started coming here to Restore. Some of y'all were around here for that time. You remember that group of girls. My first few months of knowing her were pretty uneventful, but then she took me up on my offer to go get coffee. And in September of 2018, we sat down at OPA over on South Amar, one of my favorite spots. And during that meeting, she told me something she'd only told a couple of other people in the world, that she was gay. Now, She grew up in church, so she'd heard all the stories, all the verses, Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality is an abomination, everything else. And at this point in her life, she was pretty sure that her sexual orientation was a sin, that God was upset with her about it. But she'd prayed and prayed for God to change her, and he hadn't. And so what now, she asked me. I asked her how I could best support her as her pastor, what could I do to walk through this with her? And she asked for me to pray with her. What do you want me to pray for, Kate? I asked. She said she wanted us to pray that God's will would happen in her life, no matter what it was. So that's what we did. We prayed that if it was God's will to change her orientation, that he would. If it was God's will to have her fall in love with a boy, that he would. Or if it was God's will that something else entirely would happen. He would make that clear. We prayed this for a while, but nothing changed. And I could tell that God's seeming lack of direction in her life was really weighing on her. So one day I asked Kate if she'd ever considered that God might not want to change her orientation. That he might actually want her to spend her life with somebody else not uncoupled, but that he might have an incredible woman out there for her to love and marry. And she teared up and said something like, that sounds too good to be true. Then one Sunday morning, during our last song, right after the sermon, I was standing right over there and she came up and asked me if we could pray for God to introduce her to that woman. If it was his will, she was very clear. So that's what we prayed from then on, that if it was God's will, he would bring her a woman who loves her and loves Jesus and that she could build a life with. And guess what? God did exactly that. When Kate met Holly, she knew pretty quickly that this was the woman that we've been praying for. After they got engaged last year, Kate texted me and said, quote, I am so thankful for being introduced to Restore, and that day we prayed together. It's a moment I reflect on frequently when looking at where I am today. Thank you so much. A couple of months ago, I had the incredible honor of flying down to Florida to officiate their wedding. Here we are. Keep it together, Zach. (laughs) It was a really wonderful day. But my favorite part was seeing both of their parents and so many other family and friends there to support them. I had the chance to chat with Kate's dad for a minute during the reception. He's a guy from Louisiana. Like Kate, he's been taught all of the anti-LGBTQ interpretations, including Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's sharing this with me. And I, I asked him what his journey had been like as he navigated this. He said, did you know she came out to me in my pickup truck on the way to the deer lease? (laughs) I said, no, I did not know that. (laughs) So I asked him how that went. And he described the scene for me. She was back home visiting and they were bumping along a back road headed toward the deer lease. And during a quiet moment, Kate told him she was gay and that she'd met someone. What did you say? I asked. He kind of Looked up to recall the moment. And he said, I told her I've always loved her and I always will, no matter what. And then he turned and he looked at me and he goes, I'm her dad. What the hell else am I gonna do? We need more Christians like Kate's dad in this world. And we need more places like Restore in this world. Now, I'm not saying we've got it all figured out. I'm not saying we're perfect. Far from it. But the work we are doing here, y'all, it matters. This space that we are creating, man, it matters. When Kate asked me to do the wedding, she said, quote, You helped me during some very difficult times and were so instrumental in my journey. I truly believe my time spent with Restore has played an incredibly important role in where I am today. That matters, y'all. That matters. I've given you a lot of really sobering statistics today, but I wanna end with one more that I find to be so encouraging. Earlier, I mentioned that 54% of LGBTQ plus folks leave their faith community after the age of 18, and that's double the number of non-LGBTQ folks who leave the church. But of the general population who have left faith communities, only 9% say they are open to returning, just 9%. Do you know what the percentage is of LGBTQ plus folks who say they're open and coming back? 76%. 76%. More than three quarters of queer folks who have left the church are open to coming back if they could find a safe and inclusive and healthy and Jesus-centered community to be a part of, a place where they can fully participate, a place where they can be fully known and share their gifts and love and lead. And this isn't just a blessing for LGBTQ people. This is an immense blessing for the church. Because toxic Bible interpretations that lead to marginalization have caused immeasurable harm to queer folks. There is no doubt about that, but it has also really messed up the church. The church is at its worst when we exclude people. What we have done to the LGBTQ plus community is like the body of Christ cutting off an arm or a leg. We are incomplete without them. And this is why Restore is so committed to being a church where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. I am so thankful to be a part of this community with you all. I am so thankful for the stories of all that Jesus has done in our church so far, like Kate and Holly. And I am so thankful for all of the many stories to come like Kate's dad said so perfectly. We're gonna love people. What the hell else are we gonna do? Let me pray. Lord God, I just thank you for the clarity of this passage. Thank you that there is not ambiguity when it comes to understanding the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, there are questions. Yeah, there's some Hard to understand stuff that happens in and around it, God. But thank you that you are so clear that it doesn't have anything to do with LGBTQ plus people or relationships. Thank you for the prophet Ezekiel, who so boldly through you outlined the sins of Sodom. May we be people who are not arrogant, and overfed, and unconcerned, especially with the plight of folks who are struggling, the poor, those in need, those pushed to the margins. Let that be our takeaway from this story. God, I pray that we would continue to lean in to being a place, a space, a community where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone can experience your extravagant love. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.